Section 10 of Modern England by Oscar Browning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Book 10. Mr. Gladstone, 1880-1885. Book 10, Chapter 1. Foreign Policy. The foreign policy of Lord Beaconsfield had been essentially of a forward, perhaps even of an aggressive character. The party which had come into office by attacking this policy was bound to move in a different direction. Mr. Gladstone inherited a legacy of complications in Eastern Europe, in Asia, and in South Africa, which needed skill and patience to unravel. The changed spirit of the new ministry was soon apparent. A declaration was elicited from Austria to the effect that she had no intention of extending her authority any farther than the Balkan Peninsula. By a combined demonstration of European fleets, the harbour of Dolcino was ceded to Montenegro in accordance with the Treaty of Berlin. A similar influence was used to keep Greece at peace until she obtained all the extension of territory which she could get, but not all that she had been led to hope for. In Afghanistan, the Battle of Maiwand was fought by 2,500 troops, of whom only 500 were British, against 12,000 of the enemy. It was followed by a disastrous retreat to Kandahar, where the English army was shut up until General Roberts relieved them from Kabul. In South Africa, the Boers of the Transvaal, encouraged by the opposition of the Liberal Party to their annexation, and finding the colonists occupied with a war against the Basutos, proclaimed the revival of their republic. Our generals underrated the strength of the Boers and their skill as marksmen, and the reverses of a short campaign culminated in the disaster of Majuba Hill on February 26, 1881. After three years' negotiation, the Transvaal Republic was restored under conditions which secured the rights of the native races. Book 10, Chapter 2, Irish Policy A different policy was also adopted towards Ireland. The Queen's speech announced that the existing Coercion Act would not be renewed. A bill was passed in the Commons to put a stop to unjust evictions, but it was rejected by a large majority in the House of Lords excitement and agitation in ireland increased a system of boycotting grew up by which landlords and agents who violated the principles of the land league were cut off from all communication with their fellow men crimes and outrages increased a coercion act was introduced which was opposed by the irish members with every device of obstruction one sitting continued almost without interruption for fifty hours. The next day, the whole of the Irish party was suspended from the service of the House. The Coercion Act was finally passed on March 2nd. The government had determined that repressive and remedial measures should proceed together, and on April 7, 1881, Mr. Gladstone produced his land bill. It established a special court to decide upon the conflicting claims between the landlord and tenant. It accepted what was called the principle of the FFF, fair rent, free sale, 
and fixity of tenure. Before it was read a second time, Lord Beaconsfield had died after a short illness. The scope of the bill was extended by the Irish party. It was violently attacked in the House of Lords. A collision between the two houses was with difficulty avoided, and the bill became law in the middle of August. The Coercion Act, however, was not to remain a dead letter. On October 13th, Mr. Parnell, Mr. Dillon, Mr. Sexton, and other leaders of the Land League were arrested in Dublin and sent to Kilmainham jail. They replied by calling on the Irish people to pay no rent whilst their leaders were in prison. Secret societies began to take the place of open combination. During the spring of 1882, neither branch of the government policy towards Ireland seemed to be successful. The Lords attacked the working of the Land Act and impeded its operation while Mr. Forster did not succeed in repressing disorder even by the full use of the Coercion Act. Up to April 18th, there had been 918 arrests and over 600 men were in prison. Mr. Parnell, whilst still in Kilmainham, drafted a bill to relieve distressed tenants of all arrears of rent up to the passing of the Land Act in 1881. It was introduced into the House, and the government appeared to approve of the principles on which it was based. At the beginning of May, the Irish members were released from prison, and at the same time Lord Cooper was succeeded as Lord Lieutenant by Lord Spencer, while Mr. Forster resigned the Irish secretaryship. These events formed part of what is known as the Kilmainham Treaty, an arrangement which provided that the government should take steps to remit arrears and establish peasant proprietors, and that the leaders of the Irish party should do their best to pacify the country. Mr. Forster strongly opposed this new policy, and his arguments were enforced by a terrible catastrophe. On May 6th, Lord Frederick Cavendish arrived in Dublin as the new chief secretary. In the bright summer evening, as he was walking through Phoenix Park to his new home, he was barbarously murdered, together with Mr. Burke, who was his companion. The assassins drove off and disappeared. It was afterwards ascertained that Mr. Burke was the victim aimed at, and that the murder of the chief secretary was unpremeditated. Next morning, which was Sunday, the news fell with startling horror on the three kingdoms. Mr. George Trevelyan stepped gallantly into the breach. A new Coercion Act was passed of extreme severity with little opposition except from the Irish members. At the same time an Arrears Act was passed in the teeth of the House of Lords. Little amelioration was experienced. The year closed amidst outrages and murders. In January 1883, twenty men were arrested in Dublin, one of whom was James Carey, recently elected to the Dublin Town Council. During the trial of the prisoners, he turned Queen's evidence and confessed that he had planned the murders in Phoenix Park and had given the signal for the crime. He had also organized plans for assassinating Mr. Forster and had been the mainspring of the attack upon Mr. Field. Five of the prisoners were hanged 
and Carey was sent by the government to South Africa, where he was shot by a man who followed his track for vengeance. There were other signs that the spirit of rebellion was not at rest. Explosions of dynamite organized by American sympathizers with Ireland took place at the public offices and at railway stations. This scare continued at intervals throughout two years and culminated with the wrecking of the House of Commons by an explosion in the beginning of 1885. Book 10, Chapter 3, Egypt Egypt has for many years been a bone of contention between France and England. The extravagance of the Khedivish male made it necessary to establish a system of control in order to secure the payment of his creditors. The two countries undertook the task, and their authority was made more complete by the deposition of Ishmael and the appointment of Tufik as his successor. But a movement towards self-government arose in the country, and a national party was formed under Ahmed Arabi, who became Pasha in 1882. The Egyptian army was devoted to him. On June 10th, a riot of doubtful origin broke out in Alexandria. It appeared that Arabi was defying England and France and was fortifying Alexandria, supported by the port. The French and English fleets had been for some time anchored in the harbour, and on July 10th, Sir Beecham Seymour demanded the surrender of all the forts. The French declined to fight and steamed away to Port Said. The bombardment began two days later and continued till the afternoon. For twenty-four hours the city was given up to plunder, and more than two thousand Europeans were massacred. British troops, which were wanting in the first attack, were now poured into Alexandria under the command of Sir Garnet Woolsey. On September 13th, Arabi and the Egyptian army were attacked at Tel el-Kabir and entirely defeated. Cairo was captured by a bold stroke, and Arabi was taken prisoner and sent in exile to Salan. The victory of Tel el-Kabir left the responsibility of managing Egypt in English hands. One of the darkest spots on the dark continent was the Sudan, which had been conquered by Mahmet Ali in 1819. It was the centre of the slave trade, and it was not till fifty years later that an attempt was made to put down the abomination. In 1881 the Sudan witnessed the appearance of the Mahdi, a prophet foretold by Mohammed, who was to restore the Muslim religion. In the next year he defeated the Egyptian army, and in 1883 completely annihilated the forces of Hicks Pasha in Kordofan. The English government insisted upon the abandonment of the Sudan, but recognized the necessity of rescuing the Egyptian garrisons. For this purpose they sent out General Charles Gordon, a hero and a saint, who had been governor of the Sudan from 1874 to 1879. A force was dispatched by the Egyptian government to Suakim on the Red Sea to relieve the eastern garrisons and to oppose Osman Digma, the lieutenant of the Mahdi. Notwithstanding the efforts of English officers, the Arabs defeated the Egyptians at El Teb. We sent out reinforcements and relieved Tokar. We defeated Osman Digma and burnt his camp. 
but we shrunk from opening the road to Berber on the Nile, and on April 1884 withdrew our troops. At this time the anxiety felt for Gordon in Khartoum was intense. He had gone out without promise of assistance, but public opinion demanded that he should be relieved. At last, at the end of 1884, a small expedition was sent to a succor under Lord Wolseley. Disasters followed fast. Burnaby fell at Abu Clay, and Stuart soon afterwards died of his wounds. At last, Wilson, his successor, reached Gubat on the Nile. He found four steamers sent by Gordon and hoped soon to press his hand. The English redcoats came in sight of Khartoum on January 28th, but heard that the city had fallen to the Mahdi two days before, and that Gordon had been killed. The Sudan was now abandoned, but Suakim was again occupied in force. Book 10, Chapter 4, Parliamentary Reform It remained for the ministry to redeem a pledge which they had given on their accession to office of reforming the representation of the people in Parliament by admitting the country labourers to the suffrage. Mr. Trevelyan had year after year brought forward a motion for assimilating the franchise in counties to that in boroughs. The new bill added to the householder and lodger franchise already existing in boroughs a service franchise in favour of persons who occupied buildings without being either the owners or the tenants. These three classes of franchise were now introduced into the counties. The standard of the occupation franchise was reduced, and faggot votes were abolished. Scotland and Ireland were placed upon the same footing as England, although with respect to the latter country, this step was strongly resisted by the Conservatives. In the Lords, an amendment was proposed by Lord Cairns, that the bill should not come into operation until the scheme of redistribution which was to accompany it had been agreed upon. This was accepted, and the bill which had been introduced on February 29, 1884, finally passed on December 5th. It added about two millions of voters to the register. After much discussion in the press and in the country, Mr. Gladstone produced his scheme of redistribution at the end of November. It had been drawn up in concert with Lord Salisbury, and its principal features were that it disfranchised a large number of small boroughs, established an almost uniform system of one-member constituencies, and slightly increased the numbers of the House of Commons. It was read a second time the day before the Franchise Bill became law, and its further consideration was adjourned till the following year. It was discussed in detail from March to June, 1885, and did not become law until the government which had introduced it had ceased to exist. This catastrophe was the result of an accident. The wear and tear of five eventful years had produced dissensions in the Liberal Party, and an amendment on the budget proposals of Mr. Childers was carried against the government by a majority of twelve. Many liberals were absent from the division, and thirty-nine home rulers voted for the opposition. Mr. Gladstone resigned office. End of section 10